You're listening to audio from NC Worship, the Sunday morning worship gathering of Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. Let me ask you a question. Do you like it um, when, whenever you can see something that's old being made new? Um, I uh, spent a couple of years when I was first married living in Sioux City, Iowa, of all places. And, uh, and in Iowa, in the city of Des Moines, there's this this large warehouse called West End Architectural Salvage. And uh, you, you, may, you might have heard about it because they now have a show about West End called West End Salvage on A&E. And, and what, what they basically do is they take old things, they salvage them, make them new and sell them. And so I love, I love this. I love the show. I love the idea. And maybe, uh, just raise your hand if you've ever taken an old piece of furniture and you've redone it, repainted it, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So lots of, uh, lots of creative types, or uh, at least people that, you know, um, in kind of that kind of genre. Uh, I, I, um, I'll admit something. I, I myself like, I like working with my hands, and I like to, 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 to you know, build things and all, all of that. And uh, I'm in what Greg calls my palette phase right now. And, uh, and so what, maybe you've seen this. You, you can take uh, an old palette and there is like a, a total, there's, there's a, a huge subculture. Um, there's a huge subculture of people who can take a palette and make it into something usable. And, uh, and so Jeannie, who's the creative director in our home, found how we could take some pallets that we had left over from some staging we did for, uh, for Advent for Christmas, and I took one of them, and I, and I built something out of it. I built a desk for my, for my son. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Mary's the only one impressed, obviously. Um, and so I, 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 I made this desk, and it's now ha- hanging on the wall in my kid's room, and uh, so, so it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, to, to take something that's old and unusable and, um, and to, to see it made into something new and usable, right? Well, this is really a great illustration of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to make what we think to be as old and worthless or what we understand to be old and worth, worthless apart from God. And he's making all things new. And John's telling us here a story uh, which is the first sign that Jesus is who John claims he is. You see, uh, Jesus has, I'm sorry, John has already told us that people are recognizing Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, to be something more than that. He is the Lamb of God. We read in verse 29 and verse 36 of the first chapter a couple of weeks ago. Uh, someone also calls him in the first chapter, the King of Israel. And we know from uh, near the end of John, that, that John is writing this letter to, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is something special, that he's come to do, do something new. So, so the story today in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is a story uh, where we see the first sign of Jesus, and it reveals, it helps us to understand that Jesus has come, and he's more than an ordinary man. He does something unique and special, and he has a certain power. I will say, even as I begin getting into this section of John's gospel, where he's going to, for about the next uh, 10 or 11 chapters, to, to list some, some miracles that Jesus has done. See, Jesus is, is going to begin moving towards the cross, where he dies 
so that our sin can be forgiven, then he's raised from the dead. But, but on his way, he does some miracles, and John lists them, lists them out. I do think it's maybe important that we acknowledge that, that uh, Jesus did many things that aren't even recorded in the Bible. John 21, verse 25 says, Now there are also many things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so it is interesting to ask the question, well, why would John pick uh, this miracle that Jesus has done? And we'll see that in a little bit. And we must assume that he's picked it because it, 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 carefully, it helps us to carefully consider the question he's asking, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Savior? And of course, we confess and believe that he is. And, um, and so I, Jesus does something here. He basically turns water into wine. And so I've titled this message, Jesus said, what? You know? Um, in verse, uh, and so here we are in John chapter two, verses one through 12. So the way I'm going to handle the passage today, because there's some history that I have to, as I'm teaching and I'm just going to have you remain seated. And then I'm going to teach you the passage, draw a few points out. And then hopefully, um, just the spirit of God will use it in your life. Okay. Um, big idea is with Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. So if you're taking notes, that's the big idea with Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. So here we are, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. So John, the gospel writer, is moving us forward. I talked about this a little, little bit last week, that, that the passage, these are not isolated stories. They're, they're, it's moving us towards something. So on the third day, uh, there was a wedding. Now, Jewish weddings are very important. It's like a big party that goes on for seven days. Uh, that's different in different cultures, right? Um, maybe you're of like the weddings that I have um, been able to preside over, like the Hispanic weddings, like typically those go like all night long, right? Uh, like you, you, yeah, you, I mean, they order like tacos at midnight to get kind of people re-energized, you know? Um, and... Um, um, if you are um, uh, Anglo, like myself, typically uh, it's like, just have your wedding and be done, you know? Uh, get it in, get it out, you know, that kind of a thing. Obviously, that's a generality. But different cultures have different, uh, different ways to celebrate the marriage of two people. In Jewish culture, they, they partied for seven days. They celebrated for seven days. It was an occasion where not only were family and friends invited, but they tried to invite the entire community. I mean, the, in this culture, they're very tribal, very connected. People didn't, I mean, America, we're very individualistic and think of ourselves and kind of, you know, but in, in the East, and especially during this, this period of, of history in the ancient Near East, uh, or the Near East, um, there, there was a sense of community. So if somebody was getting married, the entire community would come out and be a part of it. They, they loved to celebrate. Now, this area of Cana, it's just as a point, it's an insignificant village uh, in the hometown of Nathaniel, which is the guy that we talked about last week, basically question Jesus. Could, he, could anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus does, tells Nathaniel something about himself, and then Nathaniel's moved to believe that Jesus is significant. So here's where Jesus is. He's in, in this, this, this city or this village called Cana. It's an insignificant kind of village. And, and it really, I love pointing out things like this because we see throughout the Bible that, that God takes seemingly insignificant things and, and uses them for something larger, Right? Um, I'm like a pallet. I mean, God, you know, um, I just 
drew an analogy that I was like a god over the palettes. I took this palette and I did... Anyway, that maybe it's not so good. Okay, so, um, so on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana, a big party in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. There's only a couple times in John's gospel that that Mary, the mother of Jesus, even, even mentioned. This is one of them. Um, she's not at the... She's not a main, main figure in John's gospel. That's maybe important to note. Um, and, and some scholars believe, and I'm persuaded to believe, that right here, she's actually widowed at this point. Her husband Joseph has passed, and so she's learned to become kind of dependent upon Jesus and his resourcefulness. I mean, Jesus is a grown man at this point, around 30 years of age. So verse 2, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. The disciples just listed in chapter 1, probably Andrew, Philip, Peter, Nathaniel, and the gospel writer John. So so here is this wedding. Mary is there. She's somehow connected to the wedding party, probably more than just someone casually attending as a part of the community. Uh, she feels some responsibility for what's going on at the party. Uh, because in verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, uh, these weddings that lasted seven days... Uh, there was a lot of celebrating that went on as a part of them, as I've already mentioned. But for someone to, to have a wedding, to be hosting a wedding, and, and to not be able to provide enough wine for people to enjoy celebrating uh, on this occasion would, would be shameful. And in this culture, honor, like it's an honor kind of a culture. Do you know what I mean by that? Like uh, in there, still this way in parts of the world, in fact, one time I was in Ethiopia, I heard, I heard uh, a story about um, our, my friend that's ministering there. He was being wrongly accused by a police officer of, of committing a traffic violation. And, uh, and he knew he'd been wrongly accused. And so he just started yelling in public while this police officer is there. Um, he started yelling, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying, he's lying, and which was kind of shaming this police officer. Well, the police officer was so afraid that he might lose honor because, in fact, he was lying, uh, that he, uh, he ran off. <laughs> I would not suggest trying that today. Ben, where are you? Would that work if you just started yelling at the police? You know, anyway, probably not. Um, so in our culture, maybe not so much. But in this culture, in the, in the East during this time, honor was very important. Protecting your sense of honor and uh, um, and dignity was very, very important. So to run out of wine would have been shameful. And these people who were hosting this wedding, the groom is partly responsible for the provision, they would have been the subject of jest for years. People would have made fun of them for years. They would have been a, um, a source of, of joking for years. So they're responsible. So um, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says they have no wine. Now, Jesus says to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, if you're young, still living at home with your mom, do not say this. If one of my kids said this to my wife, uh, it would be a beating. Or if you're not into spanking, there would be a really strong timeout. Um, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But this is a richly significant uh, phrase. And, uh, and, and, and you should know that Jesus... In the way that he speaks to her, it is culturally a little bit harsh. And, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with it, but what I do know is that Jesus distances, him, distances himself from his family uh, at this point when it might disrupt this higher purpose. That's very important. I'll bring it back up later. And then he says, 
Uh, my hour has not yet come. Now, in John's gospel, uh, anytime you see the word like the hour, it, it, uh, it, it typically talks about the moment that Jesus is cross, uh, crucified, the event of the cross. So when he's saying my hour has not yet come, what he's essentially saying is that my time to die has not come. It's not time for me to begin moving towards the cross in this way. And he knows if he is being called on by Mary to do something supernatural, that people will begin to look at him as the Messiah and the events will begin directing him to the cross to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. So just just hang on to that. Verse five, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, just a little bit of um, background here. In the Old Testament uh, law, um, there was a heavy emphasis on cleanliness. And when I say cleanliness, you're thinking like soap and water, which is partially true. But there is an emphasis on cleanliness like um, something that were, was, was to be used as a part of a religious ceremony uh, had to be uh, holy. And there was a whole process, for instance, if a bowl was going to be used in the uh, spiritual ceremony, there was a whole process of getting that bowl from being unclean to being clean uh, and, and, and some things that were used in this spiritual ceremony were made clean by sacrifice and the shed of blood. Other things were made clean by, by this certain um, process of, of using this water that had been made ceremonial uh, kind of water clean. You understand what I'm saying? So the products used in religious observance, the items used in religious observance, uh, you couldn't just pull something off the shelf and use it to, I mean, like these bowls right here that we have, you know, we have this, this bowl for the bread. This bread represents the body of Christ. We, we don't, I mean, this is, this is bread. It's unleavened bread in a bowl that's you know, nothing particularly spiritual about it. But in the Old Testament, if there was going to be a, a bowl used for some religious observance, it couldn't just be a bowl you pulled off the shelf. And we pulled these bowls out of the kitchen in the back. All kinds of people have touched them, you know. It, but, but to us, it's, it's not as significant. Well, in the Old Testament, like if this bowl, this bowl couldn't, I mean, you couldn't, not just anybody could even touch it before it was being used. And if it had been uh, made unclean by some unholy person touching it, then they would have to use this water out of one of these big jars, maybe to even clean the bowl. So, so here Jesus is at this wedding, and there are these um, stone water jars. There's six of them. And uh, by the way, um, some might say, well, this is just a made-up story. But we believe that John actually was there and he saw it, which is how he knows that there was actually six of these water stone uh, jars. Verse 6 tells us that these, star, these uh, stone water jars are there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there is a whole lot of um, room for water. Um, And um, no matter what we understand about them, we ought to see them as a place where Jesus is going to inaugurate his public ministry. 
So something is going on in the earthly level here. There's a wedding. They run out of wine. There's a problem. Mary knows Jesus is resourceful, goes to him and says, Jesus, what do we do? We don't want for these people that are hosting this wedding to, to receive the shame of having run out of wine. But then there's like a, like a deeper reality. And that is that Jesus sees this as an opportunity to, to demonstrate what it is like uh, with this ushering in of this, this new way uh, as he's come to earth as the son of God. I imagine that Jesus, in, in maybe it's a second or 10 minutes or whatever, there's a moment where he's paused. He sees the need. Uh, he, he's not the center of attention at this wedding. The, the wedding party is the center of attention at this party. He's just a, a bystander and a tender, and uh, he sees maybe in this moment an opportunity. Maybe he's reminded of those Old Testament prophets who expected the Messianic age, which is the period of time the Messiah was going to come. They expected the Messianic age to be a period where the wine would flow freely. Uh, one Jewish phrase, there is no rejoicing without wine. Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. And so, so maybe he was reminded of that, that the prophets spoke of an age when the Messiah would come that would be, would be such joy and such celebration that, that uh, it, it would be like a big party. And maybe, just maybe, this is why, although he originally kind of rebuked his mother, she continued to have faith in him and his ability to do something. And in verse 7, we see that he does. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast, the person ultimately responsible for the provision, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. This is interesting. Jesus is doing something kind of behind the scenes here, right? Not everybody knows what he's done. He's not made a big spectacle of this miracle. Did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first, verse 11 says, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So this is what's happening here. This is a manifestation of his glory. We've heard that The lamb has come. John the Baptist in chapter one says, the lamb has come. Something new is happening. He's called the king of Israel by Nathaniel. People begin to associate him. His closest followers begin to associate him with the promised Messiah. And then he's at this party and it's an opportunity to paint a picture for us of like a larger reality of what is happening upon the arrival of Jesus as Messiah. Again, the big idea, with Jesus, the old has gone and the new has come. So just a few things here I want to point out, and hopefully it will be familiar to you based on what the passage has just said. First of all, every human agenda must be submitted to the divine mission. 
This is what we see here in this passage. Every human agenda must be submitted to the divine mission. Uh, Mary, maybe she is uh, fearful. She's fearful that the bride and the bridegroom are going to be embarrassed. Or maybe she's in part responsible for the provision. Maybe she's connected to the family and, and she's fearful. She's afraid that she's going to get embarrassed. So her agenda and maybe Jesus knows this. This is why originally he says, no, uh, I'm not going to help woman, you know, kind of like leave me alone about this. My time has not come. Maybe he knows that she has an agenda and that's to protect herself, protect her image. And maybe this is, and certainly this is extremely difficult for Mary to understand that, that uh, Jesus and his mission and his purposes has, has a higher priority than her own agenda. I mean, she, she nursed him. She taught him things like um, how to pick something up and how to walk. And, and um, she taught him all of these things. I mean, she knew him, was familiar with him and, and, uh, as only a mother could be. But everything has to be submitted to the divine mission. Every relationship, every agenda, every emotion Jesus is about to embark on his ministry, the purpose of his coming, and his only rule will be the will of the heavenly father. This is his mission. This is his rule. This is his focus. Now, uh, just for us, you know that there are times when our agendas might disrupt the divine mission through our lives. Here's what I mean. Maybe your emotion, maybe you're fearful. Maybe you know God wants to do something, but you're fearful. I mean, the things that we protect because we're afraid uh, in, in our culture, there's a bunch of things, but two of the primary ones, financial security and personal safety. We're afraid to make risky faith decisions for fear that we're going to go broke. And I'm not suggesting you make really stupid financial decisions. I would not encourage that. But if financial security is your agenda, it might disrupt in your life the divine mission. Do you hear that? I don't think there's anything wrong with being rich. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, uh, as he's addressing Timothy as it relates to the church in Ephesus, uh, here's how you deal with your rich people. He didn't tell them to quit being rich. If you're rich, God bless you. And frankly, every one of us are rich compared to most of the world. There's nothing wrong with financial security, but what I'm saying to you is if your agenda to, to, to secure uh, yourself financially, uh, it, it, that could become a problem if it, if it keeps you from seeing the divine mission and taking steps of faith. I, I just want to applaud. We actually have 15 people going to Ecuador uh, here in uh, about a month. And for some, uh, it was a real financial step of faith. Some used money that they could have used on other things since maybe, maybe it provided some security to provide for this work where our church is sending 15 people, which is really awesome. And others of you that aren't going to go have been giving, which is wonderful, and I continue to continue helping us get this team there. Um, another fear that we have is personal safety. We're afraid of, of being harmed or putting ourselves in a situation where, where we'd be hurt. 
And so, um, again, I'm not suggesting that you do something dumb and just go looking for trouble. I mean, that would be foolish. But at the same time, I, I think we must ask ourselves the question, what is God doing? Where is God sending me? How is God working first? Before we say, well, how can I keep myself from getting hurt? Um, and not everybody will understand this. I've heard of one person going to Ecuador whose, uh, whose parent, although they're an adult, whose parent um, is, is terrified that them going out of the country is going to put them in harm's way. And here's the reality. It might. It might. But you know what? You come into the why in some way uh, puts you in harm's way, right? There's a risk with everything. Some of you are like, really? Why? What do you know? <laughs> um, so, so every human agenda, every emotion, what is it for you? Are you afraid of failing maybe? Maybe that's your thing. Maybe you're afraid of, of, of failing because, because um, the feeling of it is, is so gross to you. Maybe, maybe you've never failed at something. And so because of that, you're going to just, just make moves uh, with your life that are, that are totally, 100%, you can see how it's all going to work out. Every human agenda, every human emotion must be submitted to the divine mission. I think this is why Jesus said to Mary, because he knew her heart uh, at that moment. He, he, he knew that for whatever reason, the way she was thinking about things was not okay. So he says to her, woman, not now, not in this way. Just think about that. Um. Another thing to just point out, the, the new, this new that Jesus brings is experienced through faith. Um, this is of a hard one, especially in this area of our city, and many of you are very intelligent, and uh, intelligence is good. We're to love God with our heart, soul, and mind. We're to think reasonably about things. But there's this beautiful part of Christianity and following Christ that involves faith, involves believing and moving because we just, we know, not because we can see how it's all going to work out or, 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 or because we understand how, how A plus B equals C in every situation, but, but we just know we step in faith. Mary here makes a request. Jesus denies it, but I want you to notice that Mary believes still that Jesus can do something. This seems to be, in John's telling of the story, what kind of turns uh, the mind of Christ so that he actually does something. Did you notice that? Um, Jesus, do something. He says, no. And then Mary looks at everybody and goes, whatever he says to do, do. And maybe, maybe Jesus said, oh, not only is this an opportunity to, to give people a picture of what it's like in this messianic age with my arrival, but maybe, maybe it's also a... Um, a way to, to, to teach people that faith matters. It's a pattern that we see throughout John's gospel, which is one reason I make a point of it, uh, where Jesus is asked of something, and originally, uh, at, at, when, at the first ask, he denies the request, but then the person exhibits more faith, or exhibits faith of some sort, and then he responds far exceeding their expectation. There is, as a part of what we're doing here, a powerful thing called faith believing in that which we cannot see. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. Faith 
helps us to experience the new. What areas do you, do you, are you lacking faith? What, where are the holes in your um, understanding of, 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 this, of what God can do and believing that what he says he can do, he will actually do? What, I think it's good to be honest about those things. Faith is important. Hebrews says, faith is believing what we cannot see. All right, just a couple more. Um, the new that Jesus provides overflows and never runs out. Did you catch here in, um, in verse uh, 6, I'm sorry, verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. You might miss that at first glance, but what it's telling us is there's like a, it's, there's a fullness happening. It's not partially full. When Jesus comes and starts working, things, things aren't just partially changed and partially made new, but Jesus works and makes things uh, so that they overflow and that they never run out. This, this, what's happening in the story here would have been read by first century people and is read by us to, to see Jesus as... Um, being the one who will fill up the depleted resources of Judaism, of the Jewish faith. It had become depleted and empty. I mean, this is what Jesus does throughout all of his, these Gospels, the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then also here in John, where he, he, he rebukes the religious leaders for people whose faith was external, but nothing was going on internally. The Jewish faith had become depleted and, and lifeless. And so when Jesus comes, he comes and does something that fills, fills it up. When Jesus starts working in your life, he provides all that you need and it will never run out. This is hard because sometimes we get to places in our faith where we start to question or doubt something difficult happens in our life and we start going, well, I don't know if Jesus can cover that. So we go to other places. Go to other ways of thinking. Maybe for you, you're stressed or, or hard-pressed in some area. And rather than going to Jesus, who can fill things up for you and who will never run out, you run to an addiction, whatever that might be. Or you run to some other belief system, a religious paradigm. Or maybe you run into the, to your own mind and you start trying to wrestle with how you can sort it out rather than running to Jesus and go, Jesus, I... I feel empty, this is hard, I need you to fill this up. Jesus, who makes all things new, will provide not only a little bit, but he'll provide to the brim and it will never run out. The wine that Jesus had uh, provided for them was exceptional quality wine, such good wine that the master of the feast says, why have you saved the best for last? I mean, it was so much better than the wine that they already had. It's the best in the wedding party because this is the way Jesus works. He does the best. He provides for you the best. All right, one last one. Um, God is working behind the scenes in ways that the majority will never see. This event is spectacular not because everybody saw it, it's spectacular to us as we're, you know, 2,000 years removed from it, the actual event. And we understand its meaning a little more. But to the people at the wedding, most people did not know who provided the wine. Maybe people did not even know that the wine was running out. 
we must understand that God is working behind the scenes. He's working in your life in ways that you cannot even see. He's providing for you all around you in ways that you do not even understand. And when you do see God working, the majority of the people around you will miss it. They won't understand it. They will not see it. We must recognize that if Jesus himself, while he walked on earth, did miraculous things as signs of his messiahship, if the majority missed him then, then in our day when the majority will hear what we're saying about who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives and not believe or ignore it, that's completely common. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's completely common. And, and of course, in our uh, part of the world where there's so much mega Christianity, you know, we've got mega churches, there's nothing wrong with that, but we've got billboards with, you know, preachers' heads on them, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're attractive. Um, <laughs> You know, we've got mega Christianity. It might seem like the majority believes, but the majority does not believe. They don't. And we need to be okay with that. But with an understanding that Jesus makes all things new, that's a wonderful message, isn't it? I could go around the room and ask you to share the story of how Jesus is making you new, how your relationship with God is making you into a new person. There are people in here that have in their past addiction to drugs. Some in here have addiction to uh, whatever. You have, you have struggles. Some in here, uh, your functional God throughout the majority of your life has been money or the pursuit of fame or, or uh, maybe another person you've, you've, you had worshipped them, but now you understand. The good news that God has made a way for you to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what does something in you. That is where you put your affection and your love and you live out of that. Jesus is working in your life and he's making all things new. I I love to hear these stories. And as the pastor, I, I get the privilege of hearing these stories probably more than anybody else. If people just saying to me, you have no idea how much God has changed my life. God is changing my life. I was a former, I was an addict, or I was a rebellious whatever, you know, and God is working in my life. Jesus makes all things new. Let me ask you this one simple question as I draw my comments to a close. Uh, What area of your life do you want God to work on for Jesus to make it new? To take that old busted up palette and turn it into something that's usable for God's purposes. What area of your life is it? Let's think about these things and uh, let's pray together. Bow your head if you would. Um, just, Just maybe in this quiet moment, if you're here and you've never received um, and believed in your heart that God provided a way for your sin to be forgiven through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead and you want to begin that relationship with God you want you you maybe see Jesus in the way that those early disciples see him as a king of glory in a way that you never have before maybe this is the day and so you want to begin this relationship with God you might say something to God like this God forgive me for my sin I want to trust Jesus as Savior. 
and I want to begin following him as a child of God. That's what you call becoming a Christian, and it's a mysterious exchange that I fail at putting words to, but in your heart, something like that works. For others of you, I've said something that uh, has, has brought to mind an area where you want God to work on, or you want to see God more clearly. Maybe for you, there's an area... That, that you know is broken and busted and you've, you've kept it from God and you want to submit it to him so he can take it and make it new. What is that area? Now would be the time to tell God. And one last thing I'd ask you to consider praying for. Is there someone in your life who you know would be just really encouraged and to hear that Jesus makes all things, new, all things new. Jesus takes our empty places and fills them up, far exceeding our expectation. Would you pray for that person by name? Thanks for listening to this message from Neartown Church. If you want to talk to someone about what you've heard today, please visit neartownchurch.org and click the contact button.